Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a special program in which we remember Ellsworth Kelly. Kelly enjoyed a remarkable seven-decade career that began shortly after World War II and that continued until his death on December 27th. Kelly's first retrospective was at the Museum of Modern Art in 1973. Subsequent major exhibitions include a sculpture survey at the Whitney Museum of American Art in 1982 and another retrospective, this one at the Guggenheim, in 1996. I'll be joined by four of America's leading art historians, curators, and critics. First, Diane Waldman, who curated Kelly's 1996 Guggenheim retrospective. Waldman had a rich, broad career at the Guggenheim and curated retrospectives and major shows of Roy Lichtenstein, Joseph Cornell, Max Ernst, Mark Rothko, and more. Then I'll be joined by Institute for Advanced Study Professor Yves Alambois. He's written many influential essays about Kelly, including for the 1992 exhibition Ellsworth Kelly, The Years in France, 1948-54, which debuted at the Jeu de Palme in Paris before traveling to the National Gallery of Art in Washington. Bois is also the editor and author of Ellsworth Kelly, Catalogue Resume of Paintings, Reliefs, and Sculpture, Volume 1, 1940-53. One of my favorite Kelly shows and one of my favorite exhibitions of the aughts was Ellsworth Kelly, Red, Green, Blue, which my third guest, Toby Camps, organized for the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego in 2003. It traveled to the MFA Houston and to the Whitney. Camps is now a curator at the Menil Collection. My last guest will be Roberta Smith, the co-chief art critic of the New York Times. When Smith reviewed the 1996 Guggenheim retrospective, she embraced some aspects of Kelly's work, but found much of it lacking. 17 years later, she revisited Kelly when she reviewed five shows that were then on view in Manhattan. We'll talk about how she came to consider Kelly differently over the years. By the way, we'll have links to both of those reviews on manpodcast.com. We'll start the program with Diane Waldman after the break. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Noah Purifoy Junk Data, on view January 30th through April 10th. Junk Data is the first major museum retrospective of Purifoy's work in almost 20 years. Bringing his fascinating career into focus like never before, the exhibition features more than 50 of his vibrant works dating to the late 1950s to the early 2000s. Originally organized and curated by Franklin Sermons and Yael Lipschitz for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, this is the exhibition's only stop outside of Los Angeles. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Thanks for listening to this week's Modern Art Notes podcast. There are many ways you can subscribe to the program. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and we're also available via an old-fashioned RSS feed. Please visit manpodcast.com not just to find our entire archive of programs, but for subscription links, too. Many of you have rated our program on iTunes and on other services. Thanks so much for that. Your ratings help other people find the show. Now back to this week's program. And we're back. Diane Waldman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thank you, Tyler. It's nice to be with you. So as I understand the story, you met Ellsworth Kelly back in the late 1960s when you were a, a curator at the Guggenheim. You met him for the first time. Well, tell us how you met him for the first time. It's quite a, quite a story. <laughs> yeah, it is quite a story. I joined the Guggenheim in 1965 as a research fellow, which was about as low on the, r- the rung of the ladder as you could get. And I uh, was promoted in 1967, 
And then shortly after that, uh, my husband, the artist Paul Waldman, said, you like Ellsworth Kelly's work so much, why don't you call him and ask him to do an exhibition? And I thought, holy God, I can't do this. But anyhow, I got up my courage to call him. He was living at Des Artistes at the time on the West 60s in New York. I said, hi, Ellsworth Kelly, this is Diane Waldman. I'm an assistant curator at the Guggenheim Museum. You don't know me, but I would like to do an exhibition of your work. <laughs> there was a pause. And then he said, well, actually, Bill Rubin at the Museum of Modern Art has asked me to do an exhibition, but why don't you come over? That's my memory. So I made an appointment to go over to Des Artistes to see him. He had this wonderful studio with this huge skylight. And uh, we talked for a bit. He had some wonderful paintings in the studio. And then he said to me, why don't you write an article for me, on me, for Art News? But he reiterated that he was having an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art, and therefore I couldn't do anything with him at the Guggenheim. So that was the beginning of our friendship. Uh, I visited him in Bridgehampton, where he had a rented a studio for the summer, and then I wrote the article for Art News magazine. So it was the beginning of a very long friendship. Bill Rubin never did the show at the Modern, but he had someone else do it for him. And so I lost the exhibition, but I didn't lose my friendship with Ellsworth, and it continued to grow over the years. And you did some projects with him, ultimately culminating in the 1996 retrospective, so you stuck around for 20 years. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Hardly because he was such a fun person to be with. Uh, he had a Mercedes, and he used to drive like a crazy man down uh, <laughs> down the street in New York. He was just great fun. We both loved wine, and uh, we would talk about Chateau Vintages, which uh, I, both of us at that time, didn't have a heck of a lot of money, but on the other hand, those vintages were not terribly expensive either. We loved art, and I just loved talking to him, and of course, I loved his work. So he had the show, he had the show at the Modern. We continued to be friends. What attracted you to the work in the late 60s? Do you remember what about it drew you in? It's another long story. I, I studied painting at Hunter College. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts. I realized that I was really not cut out to be a painter, which in those days entailed a pretty big struggle. And as I said earlier, I was married to a painter, but I loved art. And uh, I was pretty clear about liking art that stood out as unique. And for me, as a student at Hunter, it was really Bill de Kooning and Barnett Newman. After that, it was pop art, and uh, my husband had met and become friendly with Roy Lichtenstein, so I did an exhibition of his in 69 at the Guggenheim. And then... I thought that there was a certain similarity or clarity in the works of both Roy and Ellsworth. I just felt that the statement about color was so strong and so powerful. And while there was a similarity that he shared with Barnett Newman in the sense that both were about color and space, 
the end result to me was very different. So I saw a continuity and I saw a change. And that's what attracted me in large part to um, Ellsworth. So by the time of the retrospective, 20 years have passed. Is it the same things that interested you in the work or had you found different ways in? It was basically the same thing. I mean, I love the way he looked at reality and made these beautiful, simple, abstract forms from shapes and shadows, from architecture, from Romanesque churches. And again, I always sought clarity in an artist's work. And I thought that uh, the way in which he developed his color over the years was always intriguing to me, along with his concept of shape. So that was really what I remained interested in primarily. I mean, other people have talked about the spirituality in his work, but my primary interest was in how he worked with color. So your your Kelly retrospective opened just under 20 years ago now as we tape this. The installation involved building out nearly every wall on, on which a painting was installed, and it's widely considered one of the greatest things that Guggenheim has ever done. I imagine you've had lots of time to think about that show and, and, and what worked. What do you remember most about it? What, do you, what did you most get right? What I really liked about the show was the experience of looking, being able to stand on the ramps and look up and down and see the progression of color as it developed over the years of shape, scale became an important factor in Ellsworth's work. And the museum has the, has the ability to this day of being able to afford the viewer a chance to see something on a large scale that still remains intimate. And that's a feature of Ellsworth's work that I think came across brilliantly in that exhibition. I had had the experience a few years earlier of doing, some, many years earlier actually, of doing a Mark, Mark Rothko exhibition, a retrospective. So I, I had that experience of working with color on the ramps. The effect of Ellsworth's installation was one of great joy. The color just sang. And uh, I think to me that was one of the beauties of the exhibition. The exhibition preparation itself is always a nightmare when you're dealing with a building where you have to compensate for the fact that you're on an angle. But in part, I think it worked because of the many shaped canvases that Ellsworth had in the exhibition. So I didn't have to deal constantly with a rectangle. So we're, we're, we're talking in, in 2016, back in 1996, the kind of mega show was somewhat less common, and your show included, depending on, on who was doing the counting, somewhere between 250 and 363 works. Why did you think it was important to, why did you want to, to go so big and so broad across so many different media? I thought that Ellsworth was overlooked. He felt that way about himself. He felt a bit lost coming from France, where he lived after World War II for many years. Came back to the United States in 1954. Yeah, coming to New York in the 50s, settling in lower Manhattan. While he became friendly with a group of artists, among them Jack Youngerman and uh, Agnes Martin, the tendency in New York in the 60s was very much about pop art and uh, minimalism. 
but a kind of minimalism that uh, didn't include Ellsworth. You know, I have to say at the onset that I loved minimalism, but I didn't. I never thought of Ellsworth as fitting in with that particular group of minimalist artists. Uh, I'm talking now about Carl Andre, Bob Ryman, Robert Mangold, Don Judd, and uh, I'm missing Dan Flavin. Uh, some of them. I thought they had very different issues, and I think. I, especially in the area of color, although Judd did work with color in his sculptures. But I didn't see them as aligned. I saw Ellsworth as a unique figure, underappreciated in New York, and I felt that the show would give the art world a chance to see just how important he was. What I didn't realize was how popular the show would be for the large, to the larger audience, the public. When you did your show, had there been exhibitions of Kelly's work that included photographs with the the paintings? Not to my knowledge. And certainly Yeah, not, I couldn't find any. Not to my knowledge. So how did he feel about some of that, I don't know, source material, it's a bad phrase, you know, having the curtain pulled back on the magic, if you will? I think he liked it because I think he wanted people to understand where his imagery came from. He wasn't being terribly mysterious about it, but I think that he felt, and I agreed, that it would give people a chance to get a better understanding of how much how rooted in reality he was. That's my feeling. I mean, we never really discussed it, other than to say, uh, you know, hi, Elsworth, isn't this a great idea? Or he brought it up. Hi, Diana. <laughs> I think we need to add this probably at the last minute. <laughs> So we kind of take it for granted now, but, but, but for example, photographs ended up in many or most of the ensuing Kelly shows, including Red, Green, Blue, the, the Toby Camps show that we'll be discussing later on the, on the program. Yeah, no, it, came, it was a nice little addition to uh, his, his body of work. There are a couple of things in your exhibition catalog essay I'd like to ask about. One, one is that Kelly told you that he felt most connected with two artists with whom he would appear to be least connected, Jasper Johns and Roy Lichtenstein. You'd know that probably especially better than anyone else, because not only did you do the Kelly show, you did a Lichtenstein retrospective. In fact, you kind of did two. I did two. <laughs> one in 69 and one in 93? Yeah, that's correct. So how, how, did, how did Kelly feel connected to Lichtenstein? And did that help get you to Lichtenstein? I introduced, we introduced, Paul and I introduced him to uh, Roy. Roy and Dorothy and Paul and I owned a house Dorothy together. Yeah, Dorothy Lichtenstein owned a house together in Southampton. We bought a house together in Southampton in 1968. And uh, Roy and Dorothy moved two years later. But in that interim, as I said, uh, Ellsworth was summering in Bridgehampton. So we introduced them, uh, meaning uh, Roy and Dorothy, to Ellsworth. And he mentioned to me that in some ways he felt closer to Roy than he did to any of the other artists that people might associate him with. And I totally understood what he meant, but I never really gave it any thought as to what he meant, and we never talked about it. I was thinking about it the other day, and one of the ideas that I had was, as I said, Earl mentioned earlier, he was looking at the real world from which he abstracted 
forms. When I worked with Roy, in, especially in the beginning, he was obsessed with the idea of composing paintings. The imagery, the comic strip imagery, was the means to create a composition. So the only thing I could think of that really relates them is they were both observers of subject matter from which they drew their compositions. I think he, that even though Roy was observing the real world through cartoons, he was still looking at the real world and commenting on it, on the nature of the media, on the nature of women in the 60s, on the nature of war. So if you discard the particular subject, I think that's what Ellsworth might have been talking about. And also, of course, Roy used very clear primary colors. And I think in, a, in, a, in another, um, perhaps that was also something that Ellsworth liked, the clarity of Roy's color formations. I don't know if I'm making too much of it or too little of it when I, when I discuss it with you, you know, because it's just a thought. No, it sounds absolutely tremendous. I mean, as you were talking, light bulbs are going off over my head. I mean, yeah, and with Jasper, I think the same thing that he he liked the idea that Jasper could take these objects from the real world and uh, the American flag, for example, and uh, use them those as symbols to create something else, or emblems to create something else. I think that's what what it's about. You mentioned color again a moment ago, which gives me the opportunity to go back to color because I missed it the first time you mentioned it. In your catalog essay, you wrote, quote, the colors that Kelly used were often affected by location. And in the essay, you go on to discuss some of the different places and studios Kelly had. How were his colors affected by location? I think that the paintings that he did in Paris have a certain gray to them, a softness, a muted quality. I'm always struck by the light in a city when I visit, and the light, for example, in New York, and the light in Bridgehampton are very different because of the sea and because of the architecture in New York. And I think that his color changed depending on the, uh, where he was working especially in the earlier years. So they become bolder and clearer when we get to New York. Uh, New York is, has much sharper shadows and sunlight than Paris. And I think that, that that's part of what I was aiming at. One of the works you mentioned in your essay, in fact, I think you end your essay with it, is a work that I think almost certainly less known now than it was when your show opened, and that is Memorial, a piece that Kelly made for the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. Kelly made it in 93. And you, in kind of a striking passage in the essay, noted that you were particularly fond of, of Memorial. Why? I think it was because he was becoming more open about his feeling, feelings and more expressive of those feelings in his work. I think that the ambition that many of us have when we're younger is to identify who we are. And I think as we get older, 
we look at life differently. Uh, life takes on many more nuances. Our feelings become more complex. Our emotions become more complex. And uh, I think that that's what I was talking about, that he was expressing something about himself that moved me in the work. I had never particularly thought of Ellsworth in terms of spirituality, although critics have since talked quite a bit about it. But I think that that's where he was headed, in the, and that that work uh, identified something for me in that regard. You know, and it expressed his emotion very much within the visual language he had developed over the previous 34 years, 30 or 40 years. It's very much his forms, his... Yeah. What I, what, one of the things, the other things that I loved about Ellsworth in the, when I first met him was his love of art and his love of artists and uh, how much enthusiasm he brought when he was talking about people like uh, Jean R. and Matisse and how much he would appreciate their art and how, in, how much they influenced his own early work. But over the years, of course, the imagery became his, and the, his growth as an artist was a wonderful thing to watch. The changes are subtle, the forms are similar, but the confidence in his work, I think the humanity that I saw in him as a person comes through very clearly in his work, especially as it grew over time. Diane Waldman, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, you're welcome, Tyler. Blaffer Art Museum is the exclusive North American venue for Mirrors for Princes, an evolving five-city exhibition of installations and sculpture by the art collective Slavs and Tatars. The show takes its title and conceptual framework from a medieval genre of advice literature for rulers that offered instructions, aphorisms, and reflections on how to rule a nation. See Slavs and Tatars, Mirrors for Princes, free January 16th through March 19th at Blaffer. More at blaffertartmuseum.org. France's sun king, Louis XIV, decorated his palaces with glittering tapestries, handwoven by renowned artists. This collection was the finest the world had ever seen, using gold and silver-wrapped thread to proclaim the king's magnificence. Woven gold, Tapestries of Louis XIV, on view at the Getty, features rare loans from the French state and evokes the brilliance of the sun king's court. Visit in person or online to discover these larger-than-life tapestries and how they were made. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. And we're back. Yves Alain welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. You have told a story a couple times about your first engagement with Ellsworth Kelly, and it was when you were a teenager and you wrote him a letter. And as I have talked to several of the people who, who are on, going to be on this show today, they hadn't heard that story, and that led me to believe that probably a lot of people hadn't heard that story. So what what did you write to Kelly when you were a teenager? I don't remember. <laughs> I, I had the, he gave me a copy of the letter because he found it, but I don't. I only read it, reread it once when he gave a copy to me, and I kind of like didn't want to look at it again because you know it was basically teenager drivel. 
but you know, I, I admire you, blah, 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 you know, all these things. At that time, I was an aspiring artist, if you can believe. I was an abstract painter, teenager abstract painter. So it's, it's, it's of the letter is probably not worth, but it was just simply something like I admire your work and where can I get more information about your work? Something like that. So do you remember the work of his that engaged you enough to write that letter? Do you remember what, what you'd seen? I remember seeing something when I was even younger, which was an exhibition or I don't know if it was exactly an exhibition or just a presentation of his uh, lithographs in the Magari in Paris. And I was totally flabbergasted by those lithographs, which were the lithographs published by Mag. So they, they you know, they, they are a certain type, which is two colors usually with, a, you know, a, a color in the background and a, and, a, and a color inside it. Very simple figure ground relationship, but very electric colors. And I, I was, you know, completely taken by them. That's the first, that was my first encounter. And that was, I was younger than when I wrote the letter. It took a while for, but I was, I was writing to artists I liked. I was, I was without any fear. <laughs> you know, it's, it was, yeah. So we, we, we spoke about this, this, uh, and I, you know, he didn't believe me. No, 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 it's not true. And then of course he was, as you know, he was, as you might know, he was a very remarkable archivist. Yes. Yes. I want to, I want to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, maybe we should tie up how, how, how having a relationship with his work as a fan, how did you come to meet him um, as a person, as an artist years later? Well, I, had, I was in America the, the, that year uh, where the, the Copeland's article in Art Forum appeared. And I didn't 1969. Go, yeah, in 69. I was, like, I was in America for a year, and you know, just after high school. And I was fascinated by that article because this work I, I didn't know at all. So I was very interested in his work uh, from then on. And then, then the Copeland's book appeared and I was a little bit sh dismayed by the fact that, you know, the, all the works that I thought were purely abstract, which is what I was dreaming of doing myself, were in fact not always. And I didn't quite understand what it meant. And I, you know, didn't pay too much attention to his work after that. But then, about 10 years later, I was at... Um, I was teaching at Hopkins, and uh, the, sh the show uh, coming from Fortress, I think, was on the Baltimore Museum of Art, which is on campus of Hopkins. And I was completely fascinated by that, that exhibition. I really, it was, it really, all my love, early love for, for Kelly came, came back. And I was, and then I got more interested and, and, and started reading whatever I could read more. And then just a few years later, I was asked to buy, by uh, Alfred Pacman in France and Jack Carrot in the National Gallery to write an essay on the French years, which had, about which I'd been, I'd been fascinated in this, in this Copeland's article. And I immediately said yes. And then, so I wrote this, this essay, which was very, you know, I, it was very important for, for, for me uh, because I really worked a lot and I, I, th I think I understood something which, which had been a little, not misunderstood, but there was a kind of strange cliche about Kelly was, and he, he, he didn't know exa exactly himself how to defend himself against this, this uh, critical attitude that he had been a bit all over the place, that he had no, there was no, you know, he was doing too many things at the same time and all that. And in fact, 
what I did think of, what I, what I came up with, was that it was actually a very, very central core to all these various pictorial strategies. And they were all about not, comp- not composition, not, not avoiding subjective choice, finding a way of not having to decide where to put things. And, and all that so was chance, the grid, what I call the transfer, the monochrome, I mean, you know, all kind of strategies of impersonality, so to speak. And it all, it all made sense. And, and, and then it appeared to me that he was the first artist to really have, all, have used all of them in kind of succession, uh, never abandoning anyone, just like goes from one, but then he keeps everything in store. He can always come back to what he had, was doing before. But it was a kind of core, and, and that was a very pleasant, you know, it's like I, found, I felt I'd, <laughs> I found, I don't know, you know, a big eureka. Oh, well, <laughs> I found the unity. Another couple of years later, I was one day in, in, in Spencertown. I, I came a lot to interview him over the years. And he said one day, uh, did I ever show you, show you these? And he opening a big drawer in which there were you know, about 200 boards with all these little uh, collage and, and, and doodles and, and, and drawings glued into it. It was his tablet. And of course, I knew perfectly well that he had never shown it to me. It was perfectly kind of like, <laughs> and I said, yeah, he never showed it to me, and, but we should show them. And that led to another show, which was at the, at the Drawing Center in New York, a show about which he, he at first, and then, I mean, he kept having uh, kind of ambivalent feelings. He didn't like always the idea that people would see his drafts or his kind of imperfect first ideas or, you know, also bouts of silliness. And, you know, he, he, was, he was ambivalent about, about having the show. And, you know, at some point he really liked it a lot and at some point he sort of regretted, you know, so I was like, <laughs> I was, I was um, sometimes a guilty one would pulled out of his, uh, you know, of his drawers, those uh, things that were private. And on the other hand, I was a nice guy who was showing that he was able to do a lot of things uh, you know, differently. So it was, it was, um, it was uh, he had an ambivalent relationship to that exhibition until the end, I think. One of the things that everyone I've talked to for this week's program has brought up is the circularity of Kelly's process, how he was eager to go back to ideas and forms and notes from the 1950s, notes he'd made in the, in the late 40s and 1950s, all throughout the rest of his career. And as I thought about it, that's something that it seems to me would require a nearly, and I mean this in the best possible way, hyper-obsessive level of organizing and archiving, I would think. And in your time with him uh, in his studio or home, did you pick up any insights into how he made storing 60 years worth of ideas and documents and sketches work for him? I mean, his, his particular filing was very idiosyncratic, and his staff always complained that it was, there was, they couldn't find anything. And as soon as the staff decided to make, put some order, he complained because they couldn't find anything because they had changed his own order. His order was very idiosyncratic. He had an extraordinary, extraordinary memory about every, the genealogy of every single work. So, for example, I would, we would think about a painting, let's say, from 1975, and he would say, Oh yeah, yeah. I remember the yeah. I started with this drawing on on this uh, that I, I made on um on an envelope, and uh, so you go and get the drawing of the envelope, and which is you know maybe a year before the painting or two years before the painting, and he looks at the drawing of the envelope. You know, no, no. Actually, it's not the first idea. 
The first idea for that was an, uh, on a ticket for an interest of an exhibition. Hmm, I think it was an exhibition at the Frick. Hmm, I think it was in that year. Yeah, yeah, it's that year, that year. And he goes to the thing and he finds a little drawing, you know, and said, oh, but no, but it's, there's something else. I, I, there's something smaller than that. And, and it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's just like, so the way it was, and you could find, I mean, it happened all the time. It was, it was like, how does this, his memory was partly because, as you said, he was very, he was rather obsessional. I think he started archiving his works, uh, you know, almost in a kind of professional manner very early on. I think specifically got, it got more organized and standardized, at least in his own way, when uh, Copeland started to, when, when was asking him a lot of questions around 68 to, to start writing on him, 68, 69. And then he moved to Spencertown. So all these things like, you know, reorganizing his, his French past and, you know, the early works in New York and all that, uh, coincided with the, the beginning of serious scholarly work on him, which was Copeland's, and then a move to Spencertown. And then there was a MoMA show in 73. So all, you know, like late 60s, early 70s, I think that's one, probably one moment where he had, he was, he had made lists of his work very early on, so already when he was in Paris, he was listing his work, works done, works, you know, abandoned and all that. But I think that the kind of more precise archival classification of his work was, you know, he had like drawings, the A drawings, the B drawings, and the C drawings. So, you know, he had, he had, a, he had a classification, uh, you wouldn't say mania, but, but you know, he, he, he's, that plus his extraordinary memory explains that he had, he had total recall. And, I, you know, I remember one day I told him that Matisse had said uh, that sometimes he would, miss, he would miss the exact date of a work, but he always remembered the l'instant sentimental, a sentimental moment of where he made the work. And I, it was exactly like that with Kelly. Absolutely extraordinary. Extraordinary. You mentioned a moment ago the five-part framework you developed for considering Kelly's work that's been been used by lots of people ever since. The, the, the concepts of transfer, chance, grids, the monochrome panel, and the fifth, the, the use of the silhouette. I think the one that is least discussed these days is the element of chance in Kelly's work, which, so far as I know, began in, in France. How did he come to embrace chance? Is that a legacy of the surrealist embrace of chance or something else entirely? That's more, much, much more data. The, the, the kind of standard story is that he met Cage and Cage introduced him to chance. That's completely false. Cage, when Kelly met uh, Cage, first of all, they met like in France, speaking in France, they met twice for one afternoon. I mean, you know, it was like, and, and Cage at the time was not yet interested in chance. So that's not Cage. But he had been introduced by his friend Coburn and also by Jack Jungerman a little bit, you know, introduced in kind of a friendly way to the, the Kadavisky game of the Surrealists. And he had found it interesting, but not riveting. What, he, what, he, what was very important for him is visiting Arp and being shown by Arp some of the, some of the collage, you know, where Arp would, would, uh, would tear, tear some of his work and... and, and and glue them and and say it was according to chance because he, he, he pretended that he was just like letting the things fall and he would glue them in, in part. It looks a little too nice to have been the case. But anyway, <laughs> the uh, Arp was was a very generous man, and Kelly was very interested in what he learned from him. It's uh, it's not a he had thought before about chance, but did not quite know how to how to really implement it. And he was, I don't think, very satisfied as a surrealist uh, 
notionally unconscious at the time. So uh, the, the arc was 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 and, and the kind of playfulness of Arp's relationship to his own work. And also one of the things that, uh, that I should add, Arp was, a, you know, showed his work, but he also showed to to him and to uh, Jack Jungerman, who went with him, the work of Sophie Tauber Arp, particularly the, the, the grid work of Sophie Tauber Arp. That was very important for, for Kelly. He always told me that he, had, he was flabbergasted by what he saw of Tower Up. No, probably not enormous amount at the first visit, but secondly, but certainly more at the second. You went to see Up three times, I think. Could Kelly's experience in, in the U.S. Army have factored into his interest in chance or anything else? I don't think so. He he, he was always a bit annoyed at the, all the story, but all the obsession by Goosen and other about camouflage. He said, I never designed anything. And most of my work in the camouflage units was basically to drive trucks. <laughs> so he was always annoyed about this camouflage thing because he thought that it was it, it might have played a role. Of course, he, he was not denying that um, he, you know that he, he might have understood something about the, the figure and ground relationship then. But but he was always annoyed about the, the emphasis that was put on it by various biographers. And he, you know, he, he told me several times. You know, the, the most thing I did for them was, you know, obey, obey what I was told, do what I was told to do. And one of them was to drive trucks. <laughs> but he always said I never designed anything. That is not. He, he, he still screams some design by other people, but he, he never designed anything. But, but that's not to say that the, that the, his experience in the army didn't play any role. He, you know, he was he discovered Europe, he saw many things, he you know, he discovered other language. I mean he, it was important, he was a young man, he was suddenly a very important for and he was, you know, you know, he, he saw some pretty violent things too, actually. A little earlier on the show, Diane Waldman talked about how she thinks Kelly's use of color is tied to wherever his studio was when he made that particular piece, and that new studios resulted in particular changes in color. And certainly over the course of his life, his colors became more varied and more exuberant than they were in, in the Paris years. Do you have a sense of how he chose colors, how he picked colors, what colors worked for him in 72 as opposed to 82 or how, how he got to his palette? I'm not sure I would agree with Dan Martin on that. But I think that in Paris, it's, the Paris years... Is, it's true. Is uh, are the the works are much more limited in terms of palette. It's you know it's primary colors and black and white. And but I think that I don't think it has to do with the place. I think it has to do with his growing knowledge. You know, he was he has always been very very puzzled by his, in by his uh, what he described as as his failure to realize a, com- a, a perfect spectrum. You know, to to have this equal, you know, the spectrum, uh, the series of the spectrum colors where you have this, those band, vertical bands of color, yep. like at the Metropolitan Rain, Rainbow. Yeah, he, he always was dissatisfied in all the works that are, that are not made. All the all the four, I think, of the spectrum, there are six, uh, that are or seven now, that are made with contiguous bands, uh, as opposed to those in which which there is a, a different canvas separated by wall. You know? Those are a different story. But he was always annoyed at not having been able to do a perfect spectrum that we wanted, which is with a, a equal gradation of value, saturation, and chroma from one band to the next. 
And so he, he, you know, this is this was the first exercise he gave him he gave himself with regard to the interaction of color, and he grew more and more you know, at ease with that. But the relationship you know, between those bands he, that's something that if until the end he felt. I mean, I, I was I was uh, in Spencertown uh, three weeks before he, two and a half weeks before he, uh, three weeks before he died, and. We had to go to the bunker, which is a place where he has the works uh, that he still owns. And you know, there was one the model for the for the big, big, the large spectrum he just made for the Vuitton Foundation in Paris, which is a big, uh, like a, a screen for a stage. And he was said, ah, you know, it doesn't really quite work. You know, the, you know, the, this, it's too close. The, the purple and and the, and the blue. So until the end, he was he was annoyed by it. But this said, but because of this very minute intervals of color that he was that he had been looking at for example for the spectrum so he, he acquired extraordinary sensitivity to color and this is i don't know i, don't, I have not found any rule uh, any kind of explanation of how he chose color it, it was he was obsessed with it and when until the very end sometimes i remember the exhibition the last exhibition at uh, matthew marx there was one work that he kept uh, it was in the studio. I saw this work being redone, slightly changed. I mean, one color was slightly changed over more than a year. And he st- he, he, it's only at the very last minute that he liked this particular red. And he he kept changing the red. So it, I, I, I really, just this one, there was a, it's a work about, it was three panels, white, um, black, and red. And he, he kept changing the red. And, you know, I would see the work every, let's say, two months or something like that. So, so basically, or maybe three months, I don't know, remember. You know, for me, coming from, uh, you know, three hours and a half drive or four hours and a half drive every two or three, every month or two, <laughs> I really didn't see any difference. <laughs> and he would ask, oh, it's better than last time. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> like, one of the things which he always said is that, he, people he, people felt in, in in the U.S. when he arrived that he had French colors and then he has very French colors and he said something about colors in in in, uh, in in America being American colors being non-spectral and his colors being spectral and I said well you know it's not that that simple because you you know sometimes you you use non-spectral colors yourself. I would, not very often. This is true. Brown is not spectral, and you have some brown. Pink, and you have some pink. Not much. It's true. It's true. In general, you you keep close to the rainbow, but you know sometimes you don't. So it's not as clear cut as that. So I don't know. He he always said that is. I mean, one of the things with Elsa, which is quite extraordinary, is that, and that's why I was so impressed when I got more deep deeply into the French years, that despite the fact that he had no theoretical formation, and in fact he was kind of reluctant to have any kind of uh, theoretical formation. And that, 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 for example, explains why he never got along with Albers. Despite the fact that he has no theoretical formation in anything, he had a kind of remarkable analytical intuition. I mean, he didn't, he does, he didn't quite know what he was, you know, he could not formulate exactly what he was doing. But he was, you know, always hitting the target. And his first major statement was in 69 for published in 69 probably written in 68 for Copland's and you know it's amazing it's a, it's very clear what he wants to do he explains this transfer he explains the grid i mean it's just like but it came a little afterwards so I, and for the color 
he would always say, I don't quite know, but it's this this works for me and this doesn't work for me. And I was, remember one, one uh, time I was at uh, Spencer Town where he was pointing him a painting and said, it doesn't work. This, this, this shape doesn't work with that color. There's absolutely no way I could understand why. And so I kept asking him, why? Why is this green not working with this, this shape that you say would, would work perfectly well if it were, you know, um, rusting metal? I could not, uh, uh, he could not tell me and I could not understand the logic. But that's, that's, that's the way, you know. That he, so everything is remarkably intelligent, but sometimes in a way that it cannot be articulated by any kind of uh, theoretical mantra. You just mentioned that 69, 70, 71-ish revelation of his method to Copland's, how he explained how he would adapt shadows on a wall or the placement of a window or whatnot into the source material out of which he would make a painting, an object. He pulled back the curtain, as as you've written about before, in part to kind of separate himself, differentiate himself from, from from the minimalists. Was he ever after glad that he did, or did he second guess to you his willingness to share that level of detail? No, no, he was. That was fine. He was. What he was a bit afraid is that people would think that is that it's always the case, and that, for example, is when you take photographs, they are the source of his painting. That he never wanted. He never wanted that. You know, he, he doesn't want people to think that it's always out of. A spectacle seen in the world because the spectacle can be a doodle that he has made just like that without thinking in fact there are some paintings that are based on doodles really that are literally doodles that he made there's one uh, painting from from early 50 uh, from in new york which is based on something one day he was looking at an old sketchbook of his and he saw on the back of it something that he probably made during the army which looked like a, a little uh, creature like that and so he decided to make a painting out of it one, that's one thing that I wanted to, to, to mention also about this, this, this the, the, the fact that they also come, as far as I know, is the only artist who ever does that, come back to early work in the manner he does, which, which is that he does, when he goes back, well, you know, usually the way he works is the way he, uh, a painting comes from, starts from a sketch and, and, and a collage. So they're like the, the, the pre, the source material, which can, as I say, be a doodle that he has made while he was telephoning. There's the, and then it goes to a fairly, usually to a fairly elaborate and, and neat collage. And then the collage is expanded to a painting. And, but the, 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 the key is that there is no change except in scale. If the source material is a flat ice, cube, uh, ice cone, uh, you know, paper cone that, has, that he found flat on the, on the, and he likes the curve and he likes a particular proportion of the cone of the, uh, of the, the radius and the two sides, he will trace that on a piece of paper. He will augment it to a, pro- a proper collage because he will choose the color, whatever, and then it will be the it will be the shape shape canvas. So it's what's what's important is that there is no subjective intervention on the on the source, in other words, and and so for him at this point. He, when he goes back to something, when he goes back like in, in 2014 to a drawing that a collage that he made in 1958, there is no difference between looking at the collage he made in 1958 and decided to realize it in painting or looking at the, the curve given by a corner of something he found in the street and wanted to, to do it as, as, as it is. It's, it's, it's the same. It's like a fragment of reality, but the reality can be something that he has done 
and uh, in you know some other other moments, it's it's uh, it's he has this kind of distance from from this material and proximity as well. But, I mean, it's 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 not different if it's a, a shadow that he particularly admires when he's on a on a bus in uh, in, in New York and, or uh, as I said some some sketch that he he made when he was thinking of nothing else or whatever. So it's that is that is why he can go back without change. I mean, he can go, that, that is why then his entire production of 60 years is like a gigantic cornucopia in which he can plunge at any time he wants. Finally, did you and Kelly talk in English or in French? Uh, in English. His French was not very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but, but you know, he understands some, some French. Uh, but, you know, in France, he was, he was, I don't know if he, I mean, he was very shy when he was young, but uh, I don't know, maybe he was still shy then, but he was certainly a loner. He didn't, he didn't have a huge circle of friends and, and all that and, uh, in France, not at all. Yeah, you know, for, I mean, Jack Jungerman was, was a very cl- close friend of the you know, family and his wife, Delphine Sering, and, you know, there was a couple, of, but it was not a huge circle. So when he... He, he, you know, he, he has been somewhat of a loner all his life in many ways. Yvan Lambois, thank you so much for uh, talking with me. I hope you can, <laughs> you can cut all that into something coherent. The Hammer Museum presents Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater, backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh Uh-oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. Now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Soldier, Specter, Shaman. The Figure and the Second World War. Featuring work in a wide variety of mediums by more than 30 international artists, including David Smith, Louise Bourgeois, and Henry Darger, This exhibition presents a range of artistic responses to World War II, in which the human body serves as subject and object, mirror and metaphor. Get more information and tickets at MoMA.org, and plan your visit today. And we're back. Toby Camps, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here, Tyler. So as I mentioned in the introduction, the the show you did was one of the most memorable shows of the aughts. And sadly, of course, the kind of single body of work within a single artist's oeuvre show that we don't see much of anymore. Why did you do it? Well, it was just kind of a, a loose idea. It was one of the luckiest and kind of most exciting and, and maybe one of the easiest projects I ever worked on at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. We had his great painting, Red, Blue, Green, and we were kind of thinking about what were some highlights in the collection that we could do something with. And we said, why don't we try and talk to Ellsworth Kelly about that painting? And it was one of three related figure ground paintings using these three colors that was shown at the Venice Biennale, but the paintings were then sent to different corners of the world and were never seen again 
together. And we thought, why not reunite our great painting, which was, one, I think, by, hands down the most widely reproduced work in our permanent collection in San Diego with these pendant paintings and uh, look at this great breakthrough period in the artist's career in the early 60s when he really came into his own. So before we get back to the painting and the body of work, what was Kelly's reaction when you when you called? He said, great, I'm thinking about those colors right now. It turns out he was making a large painting with these red, blue, and green colors, which he had even related to Times Square. It turns out that red, blue, and green are the primaries associated with light projection. You hear about RGB uh, television screens, and those three colors when they're coming out of a screen, can make any color. And he'd read about this in the billboards in Times Square. So he had been thinking about it and was more than happy to to run with the idea for the show. And so we really, in a sense, lucked into something. We connected with an artist who has a circular working method in some cases, and this just was on his mind, and he was our great spirit guide and advocate as we pulled this show together. One of the things you wrote about in your catalog essay was kind of the way these three colors play together and whether there is a ground color, whether whether it matters or whether there is a one color on which the other two colors sits. What did you conclude? Well, yes, he, he talked about this very clearly, but he this, the titles are a little bit inconsistent, but in general, the last color is the so-called ground color in the in the title. So red, blue, green. Green is the ostensible ground, and of course, it's very intriguing that he's using kind of the 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 heart of representational painting, the figure ground relationship, in his abstract compositions. And of course, that trails back to his love for distilling scenes from the natural world or other works of art. And so it was a, it was kind of the heart of the whole project. Kelly also made works with red, yellow, and blue, the primaries, the famous primaries. Did he come to replace yellow with green? Uh, I wouldn't say it was that mechanical, but he did speak about the early paintings which used the primaries, and in a way, he thought it was too easy. And with red, blue, and green, you have red and blue that harmonize, and then green and red clash, and sort of managing those tensions is at the heart of these paintings and uh, the real challenge there. But he said that he went to red, blue, and green to get away from the sort of fish in a barrel aspect of working with the primaries because you get kind of intriguing compositions or or combinations when you work with, with the actual primaries. But these primaries associated with light projection are harder to balance. And it you know, it goes back to his European roots where he was looking at the work of Mondrian and Arp and Brancusi when he was studying in Paris on the GI Bill. And the challenge of getting an equilibrium of sorts using these intrinsically kind of jangly combinations was, was uh, something he really liked. One of the things that the red, green, blue paintings do is you know, when you're standing in front of one of them, they, they vibrate and bounce and kind of visually shout at you. When you're standing before the red, yellow, and blue paintings, it's kind of a much more visually soothing experience. When you were at the MCA San Diego, they have, I mean, one of the strengths of their building in La Jolla is that almost each gallery has really different light, natural light, artificial light, mix of both. Did you find that the painting reacted or acted on you in different ways under different light? Yes. I mean, the, the colors, you know, he really mixes them intuitively and he's cutting all of his 
pure colors with a lot of white, and they aren't, they're all different, and they're all very, very subtly modulated. And we, you know, the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego is in, where we showed this, it's in La Jolla, pretty much on the beach, and that Pacific light streams in through all kinds of windows, and it was just a fantastic experience to, to see them there. And, you know, he talks about his, how he mixes his colors to try to get you, get you past the surface of the painting and really into uh, the colors, which for him are almost kind of an object in and of themselves. They kind of have their own light source sometimes, they, these, these, these red, green, and blue paintings. I mean, they seem to, I mean, you know, one of the surprises for me a, n a number of years ago was, you know, I've, I've seen the painting installed in La Jolla, but as part of a citywide thing, the MCA San Diego's painting was installed at the San Diego Museum of Art in kind of the back of a fairly dark gallery. And when I looked at it, it was just like light was coming off of the wall at me. It was really an extraordinary experience. So for years, Kelly kept scrapbooks of ideas, paintings on paper, fragments, and so forth, built into these 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 kind of books. Did you go through some of the, those in working on this show? Yes, we did. And, and coincidentally, we now own this series of scrapbook-related works called Tablet. I think there are about 50 of them where he's taken the little sketches, test newspaper clippings that inspire this and pasted them to big tablet-sized drawing paper. And we've got a number of them up on view here in Houston now in a show that my colleague David Breslin did called The Precarious. And this was definitely part of it. For instance, the red, blue, green shapes, which is a kind of hanging rectangle and then a sort of hanging domed steely-like form coming down from the top like uh, stalactites in a way, although much more geometric. It turns out have sources in a photograph that Ellsworth Kelly took of a swing set in a playground where one of the swings had a, a rigid seat and the other had that kind of strap-like plastic seat. So you have a hanging rectangle and then a hanging kind of domed form or hanging curve, I guess you would just call it. And that, and then, you know, as you do, he circled back and he realized that the little city in Delft, the Vermeer painting, has two doorways next to each other in it. One is arched on the top and the other is rectangular. And he, you know, after the fact was reminded of that and put that postcard somewhere in, you know, his files. I don't know if it made it to an actual tablet, but that was one of the great treats. You know, everybody talks about Ellsworth Kelly distilling forms from the natural world into these very, very pure shapes. And to see that happening in the tablets is, is out of this world. That Vermeer is the little street at the Rijksmuseum. We'll have an image of it on, uh, on manpodcast.com. So one of the things that your show demonstrated is that Kelly sometimes started with a combination of colors and a size, size of canvas, and then years later might upscale it. So, for example, red, black, blue, number one from 1959 is 13 by 30 inches, and Kelly revisited the same colors and the same composition several years later in another painting that's literally double the size, double the dimensions. Why did he do that? Did you talk with him about that? No, we didn't. I, you know, he's a circular thinker and an artist who returns to earlier motifs, and you know, he's somebody who speaks always about playing with vision. 
So I imagine this is all part of his quest to kind of ref, ref, refine and uh, and perfect forms that have been rattling around his imagination and his visual field for for years. It was interesting to see in in the tablet excerpts that were included in the show and that are in the show's catalog how he does that, how he sometimes takes a color and a shape and stacks them vertically, then sees what they look like horizontally, and you can see the visual work that goes into decision-making, if you will. Really a, a neat part of the show. Another kind of uh, two-painting combination that that stands out, and we'll try to have images of, of these on manpodcast.com too, are green-red from 1965, which is a green square rectangular shape surrounded on three sides by red and green blue from 1971 which is a green square rectangular shape surrounded on three sides by blue but with more blue on the perimeter of the green boy do i hope we have images of these did do you have ideas or thoughts on why kelly changed the proportion and and what value changing that proportion had for him? We didn't talk about the scale or the choices there, but it is, you know, there's a certain kind of rightness that he has is an uncanny ability to determine. When he was installing a show in San Diego, there wasn't a level or a tape measure involved. Uh, the preparators would hold up the paintings and move them an inch, half an inch, a quarter of an inch, up, down, and you would just suddenly, you really could hear them click into place. I kid you not. Like there was an almost a, just a, a very quiet sound when they were in the absolute right place. And he, I think more than anybody, was absolutely confident in his ability to decide these things. How big, you know, their proportions, all that. They just were really almost dictated by his, his vision. So, you know, I don't. I never questioned that because I just assumed that uh, that was the size it had to be to to get the punch that 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 it had. And finally, do you have a favorite Ellsworth Kelly story? I, I I know that you kept in touch with him for years after after doing the show. Well, I keep thinking about this childhood memory. Or the childhood memories are all kinds of them, and Yvonne Bois spoke about them here at the Manila Collection recently. But this sense of playing with vision. And one of them was on a stick bed looking between the rungs of a chair. And he found that if he could move his head, he could get some beautiful composition framed by the rungs of a chair near his bedside. The other one was, I think we've all had this experience. He was out trick-or-treating on a dark night with some friends. And they came upon a house with the lights on. And he saw this amazing glowing composition. I think it involved red, blue, and green. And he moved up and down the hill or the yard or whatever was outside this house until he could get this thing. And then, of course, he'd go closer and see it was the couch and the drapes and just ordinary things. But then he would back up until it fell back into place. And, you know, childhood memories of bird watching. And he saw the birds as color in motion in these things. And, you know, a lot of artists get their strength from never losing touch with these things that we all have experimented with and to stay in touch with that, to cultivate it and to draw these images out of it for me is the miraculous thing because, you know, his work is in, a, in some sense, you know, it's grounded in the world and we all 
have these moments. You know, you're driving your car, you come around the corner and you see the sun hitting a building just right, um, and you think, wow, that's beautiful. But Kelly's genius was to seize that and just make it perfect. And that, that's, I guess those are my... Well, one other Ellsworth Kelly story is he said, I always wanted to make a purple painting. And there were in the tablets little studies for our red, green, blue, where the, the blue is purple. And he never made a purple painting. But then that 2013 Matthew Marks painting show where he was just getting outrageous with the oranges and the golds and things. And I was like, yeah, go Ellsworth. You're finally, you know, doing your purple painting and getting outrageous. And he really could have used a couple more years. And especially with Chapel coming together in Austin, you know, it's, I think it's a very different situation than the Rothko Chapel, but how great for him to have seen that through, made it perfect. Like he did everything. Mm, That's great. Toby camps. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Roberta Smith, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks very much. So far on this week's show, we haven't spent a lot of time on the last 20 or so years of Kelly's work. And of course, an artist's later work is almost always the last work to receive curatorial and historical attention, and that's kind of where we've been. And that's part of why it's interesting and and notable that you seem to have made sure to have written about the last 20 or so years of Kelly's work in 2013. And at the risk of borrowing a phrase from Meyer Shapiro, you found kind of a circular unity in it. Could you maybe summarize what you found and enjoyed in Kelly's work when you revisited it in 2013? Well, I mean, Kelly's work is full of circular unities because he's constantly mining earlier ideas and figuring out how to do them. I think two things about, I mean, I really think that Kelly is one of those artists who is who was really lucky and made really good use of his long life and that he really did some of his best work in in the last 10 or 20 years. And that was, again, by revisiting things. And I also think this is a little off the point, but I also think he had a really good place to show things in Matthew Marks' spaces. And he had a, he had a series of shows where you would see related, some of them were re- were kind of unified. Some of them were more diverse and pieces were not related. But, you know, he had a series of shows that were really kind of spectacular looking and where you could really look at the work very closely and also read it from far back uh, against walls. But I always felt, he, and I, mean, I could be completely wrong, but I, I felt like his work got more physical toward the end. It became really these very strange optic objects whose optical effects then were... I don't know. I felt like they were more grounded. And then the thing, the works that we were just talking about, these two curved pieces that start out in the, I don't know when, as a canvas work. First of all, the shape starts out as a collage in a 1956 collage and then became a canvas work sometime in the 80s or 90s and then is translated in these very last years into painted aluminum that's about three inches thick. And it, those painting, those pieces in particular, I was really struck with how it was, they were better than the painting and it was almost like it had taken him this, all this time and working with all these different materials and then he kind of nailed it, at least for me in this final conversion with a with a thickness that really is completely new to his work. 
It's interesting. One of the things I remember noticing about the late 50s paintings and the early 60s paintings is how thin the stretcher bars on which the canvas sits, if you will, is. So when they're installed on a wall at a museum or in a gallery, they really are, bam, up against the wall. Well, I think that was, I don't know. I, I think there's a way that I always thought they were kind of flimsy. And, but I could be wrong. Maybe it was just the higher visibility at marks, but I always felt that the, that the canvases, the stretchers thickened slightly, you know, ever so slightly, but they had this kind of substantiality where looking at things from their sides even became part of the experience uh, in terms of the way things were overlapped. And just to correct myself, it's interesting, this B, this blue curves painting that it was shown at Mnuchin is from 2009. So he, he sort of returned to that idea and then converted it into aluminum all at the same time. One of the reasons I was excited to chat with you about Kelly was that you seem to have moved toward him a bit, maybe, since you reviewed Diane Waldman's 1996 retrospective. Would it be fair to say that at some point over the course of the 20 years between, almost 20 years between when you, when you wrote about him, that you reconsidered Kelly or found different things in him? Well, I think that in that Guggenheim review, which I, I reread for this occasion, I had a lot of positive things to say about him. But I did think that he sort of had plateaued. And I've always been, been a little uh, uninterested in the single shapes, the monochrome shapes. But like I said, I think he got better. I think that seeing the work at the Guggenheim, even though everybody kind of loved the totality of the show, I don't think that the individual works were done many favors by that kind of display. And, you know, I mean, part of what happened to me was seeing the Matthew Mark shows and really looking at those over time, and which was probably just about ideal. I mean, the other, the other way Kelly's work looks, Kelly's work just needs a lot of space because it, it sort of enlists the surrounding space into the work. And I think that, I mean, I think that one thing that's interesting about Kelly is, is he does present paintings that function partly as fragments, which is a completely, uh, completely unlike the minimalists. But I think that I did come around to it, and I, I think I had a better understanding of his contribution, which probably wasn't as clear as it could have been earlier on. I think, I, you know, you just get a sort of a better sense of history the more time you spend around all this stuff looking at it and writing about it. It's part of the reason we spend all this time around this stuff looking and writing about it. Exactly. <laughs> one, one little piece at a time. We'll have links to the 1996 write-up and to the 2013 write-up on the website. But there are two parts in them that I wanted to pull out and, and, and see if you'd be willing to talk about. In, in 96, you wrote, quote, overall, it is a body of work that has forsaken the luminous physicality of its early years and become too refined and icily perfect for its own good. And by 2013, you were finding that, that the perfection in the work had become a plus. And you wrote, quote, the best of them, the best Kellys, are so perfectly made that we tend to forget about their physical nature, concentrating solely on their visual effects instead. Their perfection creates an aura of eternal newness that can sometimes seem antiseptic, but just as often is central to their power. And I know these things can be hard to put into words, but do you have any guesses on how you came to value and appreciate that quality differently later on? Well, 
you know, I feel like I contradicted even what I think now. I think, feel like I'm contradicting <laughs> what I just told you five minutes ago because I'm a, little, I'm a little taken aback. I had read that earlier today and I thought, huh. You know, I mean, I do think there is this play of perfection and, and light and dematerialization, but like I just said, I, I'm much more interested in it as it plays off, you know, these kind of, of somewhat maybe thicker stretchers that, you know, where things are casting real shadows on real walls. So I would, I would say I don't quite agree with myself on that. I do that all the time. <laughs> Another thing I really liked in the 2013 write-up is your kind of three or four paragraph long consideration of monochrome and the value of monochrome. It's too long to read on the show. The link's on manpodcast.com. In 1996, you found that, quote, there is only so much to be done with a monochromatic shape or two against a white wall. And it sounds like you had, a, over time, reconsidered the value or import of, of monochrome as a strategy or as a technique or as a form. Yeah, I think I think of it probably because of what various younger artists have done with it. I, I think that it's sort of an infinitely expandable form, but you can't really... It's, you're not going to be able to measure the expansion with a yardstick. It's completely a subjective thing about color and touch and the scale of the surface and all that. But I, yeah, I mean, what can I say? I don't think it's so limited anymore. And I think, but I also think that Kelly, you know, like the black, cur the curved pieces we're talking about, those are monochromes, but they're such striking shapes and I think that a lot of what Kelly did was actually in the black and white relief where he's dealing with two colors. But yeah, I'm not sure that, that I, you know, he used the monochrome kind of as a unit to put with next to another unit. And that's when I like him best, like in the Chatham painting. But you see, Tyler, I never reread my, my earlier work, so... <laughs> No, I'm bound to contradict like me do. <laughs> I'm bound to contradict myself. Well, but it's I mean there's no, you know, it's impossible to expect either a political thinker or an art critic to be consistent across 17 years when circumstances change and policy or art or whatever else follows what had had come before. I mean in, t in terms of talking about Kelly being kind of the perfection being this positive thing, I think that there's a point I I think that the distance you stand for when you look at a Kelly, you you know, they're almost as if there are different Kellys. You see something from far away where it's light and dematerialized, and then as you approach, you get a much more materialist kind of pragmatic sense of what you're looking at. I, I think with really good Kellys, when you're standing right in front of them, they seem to have their own light source independent of lights or sun. So, so there's a whole school of Roberta Smithology that is tempted to take everything back to Donald Judd, given that you worked as an assistant for Judd. Judd actually never reviewed a Kelly show, but he often compared other painters to Kelly and, and always, literally always, found that the other painters didn't measure up to Kelly. How far back does your memory of your own engagement with Kelly go, and do you remember ever discussing him with Judd? I can only have one memory. With, I was with Judd when... I went with Judd up to. Um, this will age me so much. I went up with. I went up with Judd, what with Judd to the installation of Henry's show. You remember the uh, New York painting and sculpture, 1940 to 1970 at the Met. Oh right, right, right. And Kelly had a piece that was sort of 
the color spectrum in separate panels that had probably, you know, 12 inches between them, probably about maybe 12 panels. It was a very, took up a whole wall. I think it took up the wall of the gallery that, that Judd's piece was in. But I think, I remember him not liking it a whole lot, but I can't remember why. I mean, I would think that he wouldn't approve of Kelly because Kelly did stick so adamantly with painting on, paint on canvas. And I think he got a lot out of it that should have changed Judd's mind. But, you know, I didn't know what he was thinking at the end of his life. I don't remember him really liking Agnes Martin the way he did at the end of his life. Roberta Smith, thanks so much for talking with me. Not at all. It was really a pleasure, Tyler. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.